0: This many episodes in, and I'm finally going to devote some time to the culture and government and some other aspects of New Netherland. Now, why did I wait this long in order to do this? You'd think I would do a survey of the culture right up front for you folks. Well, thank you for asking two reasons. Number one, I don't like doing surveys. I like telling stories, and I like to find a character to kind of be the protagonist to base the story around, And I like to go on a little adventure with you folks. I don't just like to lay out, they like this, and they did that, and they blah, blah, blah. I don't like that. Secondly, the colony of New Netherland has changed so many times up to this point in the podcast, it would be difficult to say, this is what it was like there. This is what the culture was like. It's only now where we're nearing the end, sorry to spoil it for you folks, we're nearing the end, that I can even begin to do a survey for you folks on what the colony was like on a cultural, on a governmental level, on a religious level. Just to illustrate my point here a little bit, if you went back to the colony of New Netherland shortly after Henry Hudson had sailed up the Hudson River, well, he didn't call it that at the time, obviously, but it became known as the Hudson River. The Dutch called it the North River. You would see a colony that was mostly inhabited by Native Americans, a lot of Algonquin people. The Mohawk had yet to move in on uh, the Hudson River Valley. And you would have seen... A few Dutch traders every now and then competing with one another. And that was the, the layout of the colony, if we were to take a census. Well, who are you? What do you do? What's your ethnicity? That's what it would look like. Skip forward a couple of years. After they start putting families, farming families, down in New Netherland. The first huge group of settlers were all Walloon. They were Protestant Walloons, similar to Huguenots from France. And they spoke French. And so if you were to drop down in New Netherland around the year 1628, 1630, there's only about 300 people in the entire colony. And most of them, including the director, would have spoken French as a first language. So if you said to me, Eric, what is the colony of New Netherland like in the the late 1620s? I would say, well, there was a very few, very small European population, and it was mostly French in character, although Protestant in religion. Now, this would be completely untrue for 20 years after this point in time. By the mid-1640s, when Willem Keith comes to power as the director general of the colony, the colony has a thousand people now, and those French speakers are now the minority. And many of these families left. Some stayed and became the matriarchs and patriarchs of millions of descendants today in the United States and Canada, but many left. And so by the 1640s, the French-speaking population is the minority. And now Dutch seems to be the majority. But here's the thing. In the couple years after that, the mid-1640s, the colony balloons up to 3,000 people. So whatever culture they had before with 1,000 people, you're adding another 2,000 people. Imagine you're at a party, and there's 10 people. All of a sudden, it balloons up to 30 people. That's a different party. So New Netherland, in the short period of time, balloons up to 3,000 people. But then there's another curveball. Because Keefe's war was so destructive, the colony shrunk back down again. And by 1656, it was right around 1,000 people again. Who knows how many of those 1,000 were the same 1,000 from 10, 15 years previously. But I can't begin to generalize about their culture at this point because we see these wild fluctuations in population and we've already seen a shift in the most popular language of the colony. But then from 1,000 people, we enter the final phase of growth for New Netherland. So after Willem Kieft left... Peter Stuyvesant comes to power as the new director general of New Netherland and the ABC Islands and the Caribbean. And with Puritan New England having these families of 10 kids each and spreading out and seeking to go west, Peter Stuyvesant and the Dutch West India Company were in a hurry to just pack New Netherland with people. And so immigration went through the roof for the colony in its last phase, and they didn't really care where these people came from as long as they pledged allegiance to to the Dutch West India Company, the Prince of Orange, the States General. As long as they were on the side of the Netherlands, they weren't very picky about where these people came from. So from right around 1646, where the population is around 1,000 people, to around 1664, 63, the population goes from about 1,000 people to 10,000 people. So it's, it's, the population was multiplied by 10 over the course of about 18 years. Again, you're at a party. There's 10 people there. Now there's 100 people there. It's a different party. So only now at the end of this can I begin to outline some generalities about the culture, the religion, and all these little other aspects I'm going to get to in a minute. And it isn't enough to say, well, they were Dutch, so they had Dutch culture. Well, first of all, the Netherlands only very recently in our timeline have become united. And they're just starting to think of themselves as one united ethnicity. Just, Just... The beginning. Uh, very often, they would say, "Well, I, I'm a Hollander. I'm a Zeelander." They they would see themselves more as their local municipal uh, identity rather than some sort of national identity that we'd recognize today. And also, by the end of New Netherland, 20 to 40 percent of the people living in New Netherland were not Dutch. 20 to 40 percent, and that that figure comes from the historian Thomas Condon. So I would like to start with describing the evolution of government in New Netherland. And this is probably the easiest topic to talk about because their government system was just so simple, so bare bones throughout its entire existence that even in its fully created form under Peter Stuyvesant, it's still pretty simple to grasp and we we only need to talk about it for a couple minutes before you're like, I got it. Okay, so even, um, what's his face? What is his name? Adrian Vanderdonk, the Yonkers himself. Even he has a quote that says something to the effect of the, the director is the colony, and he's the business of the colony. Is, he's the entirety of the colony. Even in the late stage of New Netherland, the director is just this overwhelming, overhanging force as far as government is concerned. What he says goes, unless somebody way back in the Netherlands says otherwise. So government, in the very earliest stages of the colony of New Netherland, before the Dutch West India Company took control of it, There really wasn't any local government. You had different companies who were operating up and down the Hudson River, the South River, the Fresh River. And they ruled themselves. They had bosses. They had people subservient to them. Sometimes they would switch allegiance. They would make deals. And they would have investors back in the Netherlands who would uh, theoretically give them instructions they were supposed to follow. But there was no government and so this is a, a point of contention when people talk about treaties made between the Dutch and the Mohawk, let's say, who would represent the Haudenosaunee. If, if any treaty was made during the 1610s, let's say, there really wasn't any authority on the Dutch side to ratify this treaty or to, to make this treaty binding to the nation of the Netherlands or the colony of New Netherlands. Because you're just dealing with individual business people representing competing uh, outfits for fur trade. And as you recall, as our episodes went on, the Dutch West India Company was formed, and they started sending over small amounts of colonists to the colony. They started sending over directors. And this director ruled pretty much absolutely through the force of his personality. So if he had a weak personality, if he was uh, a coward, if he embezzled a lot of money, if he was cruel, his rule became less and less secure. And at times, he would be imprisoned... ...by his own colonists and recalled back to the Netherlands. Um, On the flip side of things, they could be really competent. So early on, think about Peter Minuet. He saves the colony, he brings everyone together. Now, in that case, he has a pretty firm grip over the colony. And he's a generally nice person. But the colony was so small during this period... ...so anywhere from uh, after Henry Hudson... ...sailed uh, in 1609... ...to all the way up through the 1630s. The colony is so small... The director general himself is the government. A dictator of sorts. What he says goes. And he doesn't need to delegate too much because there aren't that many people there. Okay, we're talking about 270 people, 300 people, up to 1,000 people. One competent person can run that. And it shows you how little interest the Dutch West India Company had in the colony. It really didn't make them a lot of money. In a lot of cases, it ended up losing them a lot of money. And at best, they thought of the colony as a lost leader. Where, okay, we're not making any money on New Netherland, we're actually losing money, but it's a way station to get to the Caribbean, where we're making tons of money. So at best, that's what the Dutch West India Company thought about it. And in the 1640s, the Dutch West India Company just stopped funding the colony altogether. And so the Amsterdam Chamber, a a subsidiary of sorts of the company, just took full control over it. So from the 1640s on, you know, the, the Amsterdam Chamber of the Dutch West India Company controlled the entire colony with some exceptions, coming down the road. We'll talk about that in our next episode involving Peter Stuyvesant. As the colony grew right into the 1640s, now we're seeing uh, director generals, they're beginning to strain their capabilities. There's too many native relations. There's too many colonists too spread out for one man to handle uh, with a couple of employees. So this is the first time we see individual citizens being selected to be on what is essentially an advisory board to the director, So we'll see, you know, and they're they're not very creative names for these councils. They're called the Twelve Men, the Eight Men, the Nine Men. The first one was the Twelve Men. Now, these guys would be selected from the population of New Netherland. Usually they were the more well-to-do citizens, or the ones who've been there a long while, or the ones who had good relations with the Native Americans, or some combination of all of those things. Now, these guys could only advise the Director General. They couldn't make any decisions on their own. They worked through the power of the Director General, who, of course, received his power from the Amsterdam Chamber or the Dutch West India Company. So these guys had no power of their own and they were only meant to advise which at times they would push back against that they would try to write letters to people above the director's head back in the Netherlands and of course uh, Willem Keefe and other directors would find ways to try to stop this communication flow, all this bad press getting out so these people were advisors they weren't senators, they weren't congress people they were able to give opinions and they were able to vote on things as a way of Showing the director what the official advice is. But the director was never he, he never had to take that advice. At the end of the day, he was still the dictator, in a sense. Now remember, this is essentially a company, right? So there's going to be citizens who want to turn New Netherland, not citizens, there's going to be people living there who want to turn New Netherland into some sort of rep- representational settlement. Some sort of uh, beginning of a country some sort of municipality, right? But at the end of the day, the whole land is technically owned by a company. So the director of the colony, rather than being like a governor, is more like a manager. Or to use a word we use today that is derived from the Dutch who lived in the colony of New Netherland, a boss. Just to give you an example of this, right off the bat, Willem Kieft, he creates this council of 12, and the council of 12 immediately says a bunch of things he doesn't like. And so he finds a way to get rid of them. And then he creates a council of two guys. It's him and his assistant, and he gets two votes. So uh, that's how easily any vague resemblance to a representational government was done away with by these uh, Dutch directors. Now, Willem Keef's rule was just so disastrous. By 1643, he decided to make another council because Keef's war was going very badly. Uh, And again, the population drop, as we talked about before, we're going to see a population of 3,000 turn into 1,000 over the course of 5, 6 years. It's it's, it's it's a huge disaster. And so in 1643, he makes a council of eight men. Now that council immediately calls for him to be recalled. And this time, the council is able to get letters back to Amsterdam. And they actually recall Willem Kieft. He is done away with by correspondence from his own council. And now, believe it or not, we're already entering the late phase of for the uh, government that would control the overarching colony of New Netherland, have any sort of, uh, I wouldn't want to say national control, but colony-wide control, rather than being a local government. So now we have councils of nine men, and they're elected at different points. This is under the reign of Peter Stuyvesant. There's a council of, of nine men elected in 1647, 49, 50, and 52. These, again, would be beholden to the wants and needs of Stuyvesant. They were supposed to aid him in enacting laws and rules that came from his employers and himself, and they could give advice. But again, what they had to say really meant boo, unless they could get something over Stuyvesant's head to his employers back in the Netherlands. This council of nine men eventually sort of transitioned into the municipal government of New Amsterdam, the future New York City. So that council of nine men in the last decade or so of uh, New Netherland disappears, and it more or less becomes the, the local government of the island of Manhattan. And while this is happening, other areas that are starting to grow in population to such a point that it would require some local government are also starting to form, with Stuyvesant's consent, little municipal governments. We see a lot of English governments popping up along Long Island that are under Dutch allegiance. And we see a lot of remonstrances, I believe I'm saying that right, being written to ask Stuyvesant for a little bit of local jurisdiction, local power, uh, among people who would be selected from the people who live there. Now, we also see this up in what is now the Albany area, around Beverwick. Of course, Rensselaerwick, being owned by the patroon, they have their own thing going on. They're beholden to Stuyvesant, but their local government is, is their own. Now, these local governments would consist of different departments. You would have a council, and sometimes they're called Burgomeisters or Burgomasters. These would be the, the uh, well-to-do in the colony. So in the old world, you'd have Burgomasters, Burgomeisters, all these sorts of terms. They're all related to one another. Uh, in the Virginia colony, you might have heard of the House of Burgesses, so a Burgess. These are upper-class, well-to-do people who aren't nobility. They have no titles but they're very rich, they're well-to-do, they're influential. influential, they're burgers. And then beyond these councils, you would also have a uh, rudimentary law enforcement uh, system put into place. Leerwick had one very early on. And so this, this would be so infractions wouldn't have to be dealt with by the director all the time, or one of his few employees all the time. It's just too much work. So you would have what was called a shout and a shepin, I believe I'm saying that right. This basically a sheriff and deputies. And so these local municipalities would have their own little law enforcement. And a lot of these jobs would be filled by semi-democratic processes. So a lot of these jobs, what would happen is the local people, or at least the people who are paying uh, the right to be a burger in that municipality, would elect two people. They would round down a job for, let's say, a shout, which would be a sheriff, down to two people. And then the decision as to who would get that job, would then be uh, deferred to Peter Stuyvesant himself or all the way back to the Amsterdam Chamber. So you have this mixture of company control and local control. In 1652, Peter Stuyvesant established in what is now upstate New York the Court of Fort Orange. He mostly resided on the island of Manhattan. That's where he had his property and his family and whatnot. And there were a lot of issues there and down to the Delaware that he had to deal with on a semi-regular basis. So... What is now the upstate, he didn't really spend a lot of time up there. It was important that they had a court of their own. Established in 1652, the court of Fort Orange ended up covering Beverwick, which is the, the core of Albany today, uh, Schenectady, when it was founded later on, Kinderhook, Claverack, Kiksaki, uh the town of Catskill, and Esopus until 1661. Because they were having so many conflicts... Stuyvesant said, you guys got to make your own court because you're overwhelming Fort Orange. The next year, in early 1653, New Amsterdam became a proper city. And that's where we get the Burgomasters. We get the Sheppens. We get the Shouts. We have court minutes. And actually, New Amsterdam is going to be the most uh, well-developed local government in the entire colony. So I'd like to spend some time telling you uh, the various things you could expect in New Amsterdam as far as government control is concerned. And this is a general model for the rest of the colony. Although, like I said, this is going to be uh, head and shoulders well above anything any other local municipality managed to pull off in the history of the colony. Now, in New Amsterdam, if you did a certain amount of business there, you had to purchase a Burgomaster right or a Burgomeister right. You had to purchase the right to be an upstanding citizen in New Amsterdam. Essentially, you're paying a tax to be part of this upper echelon. Of society, it's almost like a graduated tax system, but with the increase in fees came an increase in rights. So, if you in New Amsterdam had a uh, a huge dock, a massive wharf, and uh, you had ships coming in and out, and you had breweries, and you uh, you you subcontracted out to bakeries, and you you know you had a hotel and all these other things, you would have to become a burgomaster in order to enjoy all those privileges. You're making a lot of money off New Amsterdam. You need to give a little bit of that back. Now, by purchasing this right, it allowed you to do this level of business, and it also kept out other people from honing in on your business. So, for example, if you're if you're running a series of bakeries, and you're making a lot of money on it, and they determined that, well, you need to purchase your Burgomaster right in order to keep doing this level of business well you would do that But well, let's say somebody comes peddling in bread and other sorts of baked goods from off the island well they wouldn't be allowed to sell in new amsterdam at least not in great quantity because they don't live there they don't have the burgomaster rights and again i'm going to use burgomaster burgermeister interchangeably it means the same thing deal with it so you wanted to pay that tax you wanted to have those privileges if it could afford you a, a higher income. Now people could find ways around this. So uh, it, in a lot of the court records in New Amsterdam. You have people coming before the Burgomeister Council. And they say well yeah I know I do this and that and the other thing. And it seems like I'm making a lot of money. But I actually. I actually work for my brother. He's the boss. I'm his employee. There's no reason for me to uh, become a Burgomaster Because he's a Burgomaster, And I'm actually doing his business. Sometimes that worked. Sometimes they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And other times they would determine, no, you're you're making enough money that you were a burger master of your own. In one other case, I saw a uh, a man who married the daughter of a burger. And he argued, Well, well, my father-in-law's a burger. I, I don't need to pay my burger master, right? He's he's paying it for for me. He's essentially. And whatever the situation was, he had enough dealings entwined with his father-in-law that they were like, Yeah, you're right. You don't need to pay for that. Your, your your stepfather does. or Your father-in-law does. Yeah, you're good to go. And he was like, yes. So if, if you could avoid paying it and still get the rights and privileges of a burger, you usually try to do it. And the court records are full of people who are trying to get one over on the council. Now I'm going to list off the things that the burgers were in charge of um, in no particular order, just to give you a general picture of what the functioning government looked like. They had a fire brigade. So paid employees who would be in charge of if fires broke out. Which, on a colony, you know, that's mostly made out of wood and straw and wood planks, it's useful to have that. They also had inspectors who would inspect fireplaces for, you know, creosote buildup. And there would be a tax on every fireplace in a house to help pay for the fire brigade. So now they're collecting taxes from, it, from each homeowner. And you were taxed on how many chimneys you had. Now, some people tried to trick the system, and they would have two different chimneys, but it would all come out through the same opening in the top of the house. And so the inspectors would be looking out for that, too. They also had what's called a rattle watch. So you have people who were, laid up, who were up late at night, and they would be watching and seeing if any, particularly uh, Algonquin Indians in the area, the Lene Lenape or the Iroquois-speaking uh, people, the Susquehannock, were nearby. They, w- they were guarding the town, essentially. Now, you had to be 16 years of age or older, and um, that's when you started paying dues for the Rattlewatch. You were considered an adult by that point, more or less. Now, the Rattlewatch could take, uh, you'd have employees do it. You would also have people who were convicted of crimes do Rattle Watch as a sort of public service to make up for their crimes. The burgers would also license different businesses. So as we mentioned before, you would have if you wanted to be a baker, you would have to obtain a license to operate in New Amsterdam. You can't just run in and start your own company there. They would see that as damaging to the local economy. It would be damaging and, and provide more competition to those who are already there, already paying their dues, already paying their taxes and establishing themselves. So you would need a license to bake bread. The burgers would also have inspectors verify the quality of the bread. Now, this sounds weird today, but bread was the basis of the European diet for a very long time. And in fact, in all, every part of the world, there was some sort of grain, some carb that filled out the diet that was more than half of a person's diet at many times. So, Europeans typically had wheat, barley, things like that. The Native Americans, of course, had maize. And then if you go to the Far East, you see other sorts of grains, you see rice, Southeast Asia... And if you remember, if you're my age or older, and you remember the food pyramid from when you were a kid, the whole base of it was bread. Believe it or not, there was a time where the U.S. government said, you should have six to eight servings of bread a day. So it wasn't even that long ago where bread was the mainstay of your diet. So in the 17th century, obviously, the quality of the bread was very important. The Burgermeisters would also find people for having pig pens that weren't in good order so the pigs could get out or their waste ends up all over the road. They would find people for empty- emptying their privies into the street. And if you don't know what a privy is, it's a, it's a bucket full of shit. So if you had a bucket full of shit, you can't just throw it in the street. So New Amsterdam was this wild west frontier town where everybody just kind of followed their own rules and pushed each other around for a while. But with the institution of these burgers, we have the first semblance of city planning. I forgot to mention the bakers also had limits on what they could charge for bread. So there was an absolute limit. You, You can't charge more than this for this amount of bread. And the same went with the butchers. You needed a license to be a butcher. People would inspect your meat because obviously if there's something wrong with the meat, it could cause an outbreak of who knows what. And there was also price controls on meat. So they were really looking out for the people who were living in New Amsterdam, although they were the upper class. They wanted to make sure that everyone had something to eat, something to drink. They were relatively healthy. Because at this time, a plague could just break out. (laughs) It happened quite often uh, before the invention of antibiotics and modern medicine. So you want a healthy city with good sanitation as best as you can in the 17th century. Boats coming in and out with trade goods. They had, to pay, they had to pay wharfage dues, they had to pay port dues. There was all sorts of transportation fees associated with going in and out of New Amsterdam. Now, if you commute in and out of New York City today, it's the same thing. There's just, it's just money, 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 all the time. So New York City has, has pretty much been the same in that sense for a very, very long time. Schools were set up for young children. Uh, the boys would receive more education than females. And uh, we'll talk about this later. Even slaves received uh, some level of education at times. There were poor funds. And there were orphan masters. So they had orphanages. It was all set up with an elaborate tax system. There was um, school teachers. And some of these institutions were put in place before the municipality of New Amsterdam was formed. And Peter Stuyvesant would have to deal with all this stuff. Now he had this middle level that he could delegate all this stuff off to. So he rather liked local government. It made his job easier. Oh yeah, another thing you would need a permit for. If you were to make a brewery, you would also need a permit. At one point, one third of the buildings in New Amsterdam had some sort of still or brewery installed into them. And so they decided, hey, we need to curb this quite a bit here. Um, City employees were also entitled to sick pay. So we we see... uh in many ways a kind of modern municipality growing up around new amsterdam and the city in the 1660s had families industry local government law and justice compared to the 1640s when it was just like the wild west we see a very quick how quickly civilization can move in to a frontier settlement but on this last note about uh, local government let's get into law and justice Let's get into the the crimes. Let's get into the nitty-gritty, the gossip. This is the good stuff right here. New Amsterdam had a jail. And I believe uh, around Beverwick there was also a jail. And at times they could put you in stocks. And when we get to religion, you'll hear about some pretty crazy thing that Peter... Some weird stuff Peter Stuyvesant pulled off with some religious minorities. You could be banished from cities. And if you were bad enough, they could banish you from the entire colony. Send you packing back to New Netherland. There are a lot of different things you could get in trouble for, including just bad language. Now this is before the time of credit, so to speak. Now we have these huge credit bureaus that determine your financial worthiness to take out loans. Now before that, a person's reputation, a person's honor was linked to their ability to borrow money from people. If people spread rumors about you, there aren't these huge banks to borrow from. You have to borrow from other individuals, small institutions. If you have a bad reputation, you essentially also have a bad credit score. And so, even centuries after this point in time, you see Alexander Hamilton and Andrew Burr dueling over uh, rumors and issues of honor. Because, again, before the modern credit reporting bureaus, your reputation also determined how much money people would be willing to lend you. So it's dollars and cents. So local courts had to deal with slander cases a lot. A little bit of libel every now and then. And in a lot of these cases, it involved both men and women. Uh, The culture of New Netherland does not seem to to differentiate between how vocal and mean a person can be. There'd be accusations of people being whores and witches. Although, to note, there was no uh, witch hunts or witch trials in New Netherland. So it was an insult that had a heavy weight to it enough to end up becoming court cases. But it was more against the person throwing the insult rather than proving or disproving somebody is a witch. This is part of the religious tolerance of New Netherland and the the beginning of secularization in general. The fact that just, you know, a hundred miles to the east, people are being hung for being witches. various, Various New England colonies, New Haven and further away in Plymouth and Massachusetts. But here in the Hudson River Valley in New Netherland, you can call somebody a witch, and they don't have to prove they're not a witch, and they're not going to be killed anytime soon. Very different cultures. One is more advanced than the other. As I went through the court records, I noticed there was a lot of multiple marriages. Actually, that's something I want to talk about with the culture section, so I forgot you, you heard that. Um, a lot of cases involving unpaid loans or labor and goods that were given out that weren't paid for or were found effective or were underpaid for. Um, lots of slander and libel, like I said. Actually, I'll pull up a case right here. I have in front of me the court minutes of Fort Orange, 1652 to 1656. And here's a case from Tuesday, February 2nd, 1655. At the funeral of the child of Hendrik Jachoms, Klaus Gerritz said that Cornelius Vos had given the houses uh, the following nicknames that are in circulation, which Hendrik Jachoms overheard in the presence of Jacob Happ. Now, the court case goes on, but here are the nicknames given to the houses. The Cuckoo's Nest. The Concord. The Finch's Nest. The Whistling Wind. The House of Ill Manners. Fly Like the Wind. The Griffin. And the House of Discord. Now, believe it or not, just about every single one of these is a 300-year-old euphemism for calling this man's wife a whore. And this kind of activity, like many other things, would be punishable by a fine. Now, hard money, gold and silver, copper coins, were in limited supply in the North American colonies. Doesn't matter who owned the colony, they just were in limited supply. The mother country liked to keep their money there. So, uh, in the colony of New Netherland, the money, although it might be rendered in Dutch terms, were actually paid out in things that the Native Americans provided or found of some value. So, wampum, which the Dutch called suant, and uh, furs which the Native Americans didn't value that much, but it's something that they had that the Dutch valued. So if you were convicted of slander, you might have to pay somebody 50 pelts, and that'd be rendered in a Dutch currency, but that's how you would actually end up paying it, because you don't have a lot of hard money on you. Now, it would seem from these court records, and the court records I've seen from New Amsterdam, and from SOPIS, that... Uh, People calling people's wives whores was a very common insult and often led to uh, litigation. Here's one case from 1654. Let me jump down here. Okay, so we we, uh, enter this this questioning section of the court hearing here. Okay, whether at the time Harman Jans van Valkenburg, commonly called Schiele Herman, cross-eyed Herman, was not sitting here drinking, he answers yes. Whether he did not hear him relate and declare that when he was last in irons, he, Hermann Jans, van Valkenburg, aforesaid, saw the wife of the commissary aforesaid have carnal conversation and commit adultery with others, showing with outstretched arms the size of the horns which were put on said commissary's head. The man answers yes. So, again, it's it's... Everyone's calling everybody else a whore. So that's a little bit of culture of New Netherland that you're probably not going to hear in grade school. We also see people writing petitions to the council saying, basically tattletailing on their neighbors saying, my neighbor's house is falling to bits. It's a safety concern. Please do something about it. Here's one from 1655, it looks like. Here it is. Upon the request of Jakob the baker, presented in the form of a petition, namely that the straw roof of the house of Willem Jurensen may be condemned, and he be ordered, on account of the danger involved, to cover the same with boards instead. Because these municipal settlements were so close together, and walls around them, people were just on top of people, and there there are a lot of these lawsuits. They became a very litigious people in the colony. And also because they were so crammed in, you needed permission to build things, or to expand things, or add chimneys to your house. All of this required permission. Because if you, let's say you added too many chimneys, you created too many situations where creosote could be loaded up on the inside of it and you could start a fire, well, your house catching on fire could set your neighbor's house on fire because they're very close together. This is before the time of automobiles. Roads and walking ways are fairly close together. These are all from the court minutes of uh, Fort Orange here. Uh, They reveal that this was a very violent society. We've talked about this when we talked about the Sopis wars and whatnot, how the people in the town, there was frequent stabbings, even by the upper echelons of the society there. So, nowadays when we think of violent people, they tend to be the dregs. The lowest of the low in society today. Uh, Not in New Netherlands. Sometimes it was uh, the most prominent people in the colony physically attacking other people. It was a violent time. Here's one case from July 14th, 1655. The plaintiff says and declares it to be the truth that the defendant on the 7th of July last tried to attack and wound the person of Gerich Schlechtenhorst with an axe and being prevented from doing so ran after him and pursued him with a naked sword into the house of Thomas Powell and that he fought with him there and tore the male organs of said Schlechtenhorst in a very scandalous way trying to mutilate them and ruin him. So in today's world, to witness a a severe violent crime like that is pretty rare. Over the course of your entire lifetime, depending on where you lived, you might see that once. But this is fairly common. And uh, mutilation of the genitals, for some reason, I keep seeing this in Dutch records. All the way back from the early traders period of New Netherland, we see Dutch traders mutilating Native American genitals. It's happened there. We, We see the same thing happening in Esopus and in all these other places. For some reason... Targeting another man's genitals with a sharp object was the thing to do when you were in a, in a fight at the time. Just a really, really horrific experience. Not everything in New Netherland is, is going to be wonderful. There are a couple cases involving illegal booze. Either illegal operations that don't have permits to operate within a municipality, or selling booze to the Native Americans, which was illegal and which Native leaders desperately didn't want to happen, but happened quite often. Now, most of these sales, most of these transactions, and most of these bootleggers, so to speak, using a more modern term, they got away with it all every single time. And just look at the last episode on New Netherland for examples of that. Arndt van Curler, a, a lot of shady business happened in the vicinity of what would be the future city of Schenectady. In the Fort Orange minutes, there's also uh, records of native relations. When the Mohawk, representing the Haudenosaunee, would come and request things from the Dutch. It was the point of contact until a little after this point in time between the New Netherland government and the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And often the natives would come and say, we're making a deal, we're making a peace agreement with the French, and we would like you to come with us, send a representative from New Netherland here to witness the peace agreement. And the Dutch were often confused by what the Mohawk would request of them, because the Dutch made very little attempt to really understand the workings of the Haudenosaunee government, or just the way they relate to the other groups of natives and uh, the French themselves. And so the, the Mohawk would say, hey, we need A, B, and C from you. And the Dutch would go, what? What is that? I don't even know what that is. I don't think anyone here knows how to do that. And then the Mohawk would go away, and they would comment things. And we'd find these records of the Mohawk saying things like, you know, the Dutch are children. They're uncultured. We like them. You know, we deal with them. But ultimately, they're not as civilized as us. They don't really understand how to, how to do things that normal adults would do in uh, interrelating with different groups of people. So this is an example of the court having to handle something that they just normally wouldn't know what to do with. And there were other examples of that. Um, spies, for instance. So in the town of Beverwick, there was a suspected spy found in 1654. This was right before the Swedes' land take a chunk out of the southern part of New Netherland and create New Sweden. So they found a Swedish conspirator in Beverwick. The court case minutes are dated September 28th, 1654. It was a Tuesday, in case you wanted to know. And in it, they questioned a man who heard from a Swede that he was looking to solicit help and people who are willing to serve the queen. This, of course, being the Queen of Sweden. Now, this is an unusual case, and I don't see a lot of background on this in other sources. Because the Swedes would eventually start a colony in the extreme southern portion of New Netherland. But here we are in the northern portion, and there seems to be evidence that the Queen had sent spies all throughout the colony to solicit support for this new colony. And here we are at the tippy-top of New Netherland in 1654, and we see Swedish spies. Something I haven't seen uh, in any other source that I've looked at, so... This is something, if you're a young history major out there, something you might want to do some further investigation into. Me, I'm an old, decrepit man, and I don't have the time. And then finally, on my little checklist here, there are records of illegal religious gatherings. So, we're going to have a, probably uh, half of a whole episode, or a whole episode, just on religion in New Netherland. But basically, the colony was officially Dutch Reform, or the Reform Religion. And so, when there were gatherings of Lutherans... In a public setting, that was illegal. And that shows up in the Court Minutes. We'll spend a good chunk of another episode talking all about that. And lastly, for criminal justice, there was this great entry in the, the Fort Orange Court Minutes, and I can't find it now, but I'll talk about it here. You had a guy who impregnated a woman. And the court said, well, uh, you impregnated this woman. Um, you've admitted that you've impregnated this woman. You need to marry her. This is essentially the first shotgun wedding in New Netherland. And so they say you got to marry her. Uh, there's no way around this. You're gonna you're you're a scumbag if you don't. She's pregnant and with child, and she's gonna have to raise this kid. She's going to need your financial and moral support. And the guy goes, oh, I, I can't. I got my, my, my dad. Actually, my dad. He's got a job for me uh, far away from here. I gotta go home. I gotta go back to the Netherlands, and and I gotta work for my dad. He's he's written me letters. He's expecting me. I gotta go. And the court says to him, no, you're not going anywhere. I don't care what your dad said. You're getting married, and this, this young lady is now going to be your wife. And if memory serves me correct, he outright refuses. He finds every excuse in the book. Oh, I have a job over here. This guy needs me. I can't do that. And and finally, they put him in the stocks. All right. They put him out publicly in the stocks. He would rather suffer this punishment than marry this poor poor woman. And as far as the court records show, uh, I looked through it with somebody else at a certain point. I don't believe we ever found whether or not he married this poor woman. But this is just a little short example at the end of this segment of how crazy things could get in these frontier towns and how, how, how these were very different times. You could be legally ordered to marry another person. <laughs> All right, I have so much more to say about the culture of New Netherland, but this is the government section of this presentation and I think I'm going to end it here because it's already been over 40 minutes and I have to go to the bathroom so if you like this podcast please give it a five star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you could rate this podcast something I've never mentioned before we have a Facebook page please search up the other states of America history podcast into Facebook find our page like our page you get the notes you get news everything like that I don't know why I said R it's just me I got nobody else working for me here I'm alone All right. Like the podcast. Like the Facebook page. I'll see you next time. This has been Eric Giannis. Well, I am Eric Giannis. I don't know why I'm saying this has been Eric Giannis. I am Eric Giannis. This has been the Other States of America History Podcast. Thank you for listening.